kindly turn to Galatians chapter 5. Read from verse 16. Someone will be verse 23b. We've been looking at uh, this series on the fruit of the Spirit, and today we hope to look at the last part. This is God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but God's word abides forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for having enabled us to look at those nine graces that uh, mark out the fruit of the Spirit in this list uh, given to us here in Holy Writ. And now as we today come to an end of these studies, we please pray that you once more bless our time together. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your word. Kindly grant, O Lord, that we would look up to Christ and rejoicing, seeing him who is the way and the truth and the life, and this to the glory of your name. We please ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So having seen the great purity and comprehensibility of the virtues and graces declared there in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, these graces that are a result of the influence of the Holy Spirit upon the Christian's character, I would want us not to deprive ourselves of the strong instruction and the encouragement that many miss out because they omit a consideration and a meditation of the words that conclude verse 23. Against such, 
things there is no law. That statement is not inconsequential. It is not a little addition put there so that the sentence is complete, having given the list of the nine virtues. The new man in Christ Jesus, one whose heart is ruled and whose life is ordered by the Holy Spirit, is no longer under bondage to the law, the law of ceremonies, the law of Moses, which had so far governed the Israelite, Israelish worshiper. The spirit of Christ now does for the soul by his inward grace all that the ceremonies and the ceremonial law signify. The soul of the believer is free from the penalty of the moral law because of Christ, who by his righteousness, who by his substitutionary death, has magnified the law for the believer, making it honorable, and has transferred the believer in the believer's dispositions and desires so that the commandments of God are no longer grievous to the believer. Instead, they are joyous. They are perfect in his heart. They are the perfect law of liberty which he or she would delight to obey. So the Christian life is not one of slavish or reluctant obedience to God's requirements. It is not a life of obedience because we fear punishment should we transgress, but it is one of willing surrender, a willing surrender of our affections, of our powers, to God and to his service. We love him because he has first loved us. And as a result, we keep his commandments because of his love in our hearts. We love him for his excellent goodness. We hope in his mercy. We find pleasure in his commands and and therefore, we study his commands and we strive to obey them. We don't strive to study and obey them as if by compliance to them, they would afford us escape from death. No, we do so as those who have already known the mercy of God as he has justified us in Christ alone. The heart which is now full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control can only be such a heart because it was converted from its natural tendencies which were adverse to these things. And so we see here that 
the fruit of the Spirit is a work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. It would be a wonderful and high-impact thing if Christians lived knowing that we walk in the fruit of the Spirit because God has enabled us to walk in them. Not so that we are saved by him. And so in, in, in today's sermon, as we look at this phrase, against such things there is no law, I want to comfort the challenged, but also want to challenge those who are comfortable in sin. When it says against such things there is no law, there is a beautiful comfort, one that has been heralded to us this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for the believer. But before we relish that, there are those who live the condemning life. And the condemning life is one that is marked by the absence of the fruit of the Spirit. In the absence of such things, there is law, a law at work that condemns you. There is a fatal error in these days which supposes that the salvation of Christ sets us free from the obligation to obey the moral law of God. And there are those who have interpreted against such there is no law to mean the Christian is under no obligation to obey the law. And they would have problems, at least with Galatians 6 2, which calls us to fulfill the law of Christ within the same context where it has said against that there is no law. And you remember there were no chapter divisions. So there was no chapter division between chapter 5 and 6. So if against that things there is no law, then what? Law are we talking about in verse 2? Because this is not having a definite article. Against that, there is the law there doesn't have a definite article. It is simply put as, as law. This fatal error in this day, which supposes that salvation, the salvation in Christ sets us free from the obligation to obey the moral law of God, means to be challenged. It is as if in that perspective somebody would be arguing for the fact the doctrine of justification by faith alone tolerates a life of license and libertinism and unrighteous living. But that's not the case here. The Apostle Paul has been making a case for liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ and telling the Galatians, let's not go back to what we have been delivered from. And as he talks about liberty, he puts here a safeguard by talking to us about liberty doesn't mean license. Freedom doesn't mean you throw away the righteous requirements that God gives us to live in. Tells us we have been saved, we should not go back to slavery, 
instead of freedom, should be used for righteous living. As we've studied the fruit of the Spirit, it has hopefully become clear that the very object of the Spirit in dwelling the heart of the believer is to produce in the believer, in their character, the virtues described here in these nine graces that we've been looking at. If these virtues are not found in us, then we are destitute of the evidence of being born again as children of God, as those who are partakers of Christ's redemption. The Christian is not set free from the law by the destruction of the law, because that would be contrary to what the Lord says when he, he says he has come to fulfill the law and not to destroy it. Instead, the Christian is set free by the elevation of his or her soul to such a high height of holiness, to such a high height of purity, of desire and intention, so that his conforming to the law becomes a thing that he freely and cheerfully does as an act of his own will. So do not believe even an angel from heaven who tells you that you are a Christian, you are saved, when you can find no proof of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Against such things there is no law doesn't mean that easy believism is being permitted here. If there is absence of that grace we have seen described as love, if you profess to be a Christian and yet allow yourself to harbor hatred, ill will, or envy against your neighbor, no spiritual emotion or devotional feeling should counterbalance the direct testimony of God against your piety, as we see in 1 John 4.20, where God says, if anyone, the universality there stated, if anyone, boy, girl, young, old, rich, poor, educated, or illiterate, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who, he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Okay, maybe you'd say, okay, love, love passes that test. How about joy? Is the absence of joy permitted? Is the fruit of joy an optional extra for some few Christians? and an elective that we can opt out of for the rest? If one finds the duties and trials of the Christian life grievous and oppressive, 
so that he or she is continually downcast and troubled in a state where there is no comfort that more than compensates for all his trials to the point that he can indeed say, my soul does magnify the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And no matter what other evidences of religion you conjure up, you may imagine to possess such religious evidences, that the absence of joy makes it clear that you are not in the same WhatsApp group. You are not in the same school with him who said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. Neither can you be one who has obtained full entrance into that kingdom which is described as righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He does not have the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. How about absence of peace? Is that another optional thing? If you're prone to anger, fond of dispute and rancor in controversy, for even when you remain calm on the outside, you are the reason for a disquieting spirit in others, especially within the church, so that trouble rather than peace prevails through you. You may have a lot of things around you that you do that would make you think, I'm okay. But no emotions should make you feel like a child of God while you refute to pursue and to cultivate this grace, while you reject it, while you refuse to be the close follower of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, of whom we are told by the prophets in Matthew 12, 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A person who rejects this grace here, this virtue of peace, will not be a reaper of the harvest of righteousness and praise to God, the fruit of which is sown in peace. For James 3.18 tells us, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. How about the absence of patience? A life marked by murmuring, murmuring against the afflictions of providence, finding little comfort in the hope which promises us eternal refuge from sin and sorrow at the end 
of this brief and momentary pilgrimage on earth, should such a person who demonstrates this lack of patience be considered to be one who has the spirit of the Lord that enables us to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Does that person demonstrate the same school of thought that the apostle shows when he says that he had learned in whatever state he was to be contented? This person may have a lot of knowledge. This person may do a lot of religious acts, but there is no fruit of the Spirit which is patience and long-suffering. How about kindness, a life marked by a violent disposition, noisy and careless rudeness in speech, carelessness towards the feelings of others, is this Christian? Should this exist in the life of a Christian while there is absolutely no kindness being demonstrated? A life that is bent upon having its own way and unwilling to yield to his or her neighbor's comfort so that such a person is never courteous He never honors all men. He never considers the lowly. In heart, is such a person supposed, because of their goodness of intention or honesty, to be assumed to be making up for the absence of kindness because maybe they're good at keeping time Maybe they have a voice that enables them to sing well. Is that the litmus test? The absence of goodness is also a serious thing in the life of a Christian. A life marked by the absence of goodness and instead by the presence of selfishness, a preference for one's own ease, one's own indulgence at the expense of the neighbor's good, a life marked by the bestowing of charity only when it costs you no sacrifice or earns you the praise of men, is not in tandem with the spirit-filled life. A life where you do not give out of a principle of love to God and goodwill to fellow man, instead you give because people should clap for you or give out of guilt to the poor or to the church. It's a life that is lacking in this grace. Such a person does not have the fruit of goodness. The absence of faithfulness, the refutal, to be 
a strict observer of truth, where your yes is yes and your no is no, allowing yourself to promise things which you do not intend to perform, a life of wavering from your religious principles and refusing to adhere to religious practices that you have professed to others to be yours, a lack of sincerity and honesty and steadfast living in your duty to God while you interact with the world around you may be an indicator that you do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit in you because there is no fruit of faithfulness. The absence of gentleness, the absence of the willingness to forget yourself because you're proud, proud of your own attainments, proud of your earthly position or station, proud of your personal ad advantages, so that when you're dealing with fellow Christians, or even fellow human beings, you rely on your own strength rather than on God's intervening masses as you deal with others in areas where you differ with them, particularly when you're dealing with those whom you're stronger than. That's usually, as I told you, the litmus test of gentleness. If somebody stronger than you is bullying you and you don't respond, that might not be gentleness. But where you are the stronger, and you know you could quash the person, and they constantly are stepping on your remaining last nerve, and you withhold the tendency to avenge yourself, that would be a picture of gentleness. At such times, where we deal with a person who has an absolute absence of gentleness, could this be an indication of a lack of this peculiar fruit of gentleness, and therefore a lack of evidence of the indwelling spirit? How about self-control? An undisciplined spirit that does not subject its desires and appetite to the rule of God's law, but rather indulges itself in the lust of the flesh, in the lust of the eyes, and in the pride of life, or only abstains from such indulgences because of an equally selfish motive. I will not be drunk tonight so that tomorrow when I'm robbing the bank, I am sober. Very selfish motive. You cannot put that at the same level with do not be drunk with wine because of an inner working of the spirit. Such an absence of self-control, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, may be an indication that there is no fruit of the spirit of self-control. And therefore, an absence of the very indwelling presence of God in such a life. 
What should we do in such a situation? Do we continue to deceive ourselves in our Sunday best, looking the part, speaking the Christian passwords, as the politicians would do in this country? Do we continue to entertain that? No. Cease from deceiving yourself. God cannot be mocked. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Plead for your salvation. The rule by which false prophets were to be tried is that by which we should try our own hearts and conditions. By their fruits you shall know them is a thing we apply in designing false prophets and one that I here invite us to apply to our own lives. About the fruit, there can be no deception. And this is the case with the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot exhibit them in our conduct unless they are present in our hearts. The character of these graces is that they are an inside-out project. God works them in and enables us to appropriate the means of grace to cultivate them, and then we work them out. Words or even actions professing kindness, when there is no love in the heart, necessitates the law to call you out as a hypocrite, smiles and lovely thanksgiving where there is no joy within, but only a hollow and miserable pretense necessitates the law to call you out as a pretender, an open hand and smooth Speech, when there is coldness in the heart, is treachery. And the Lord call you out as a deceiver. Endurance for mere necessities is not necessarily patience, if there is no patience in the heart. The polite control of the tongue and conduct is not always gentleness. Giving is not always a display of goodness, and Matthew 6 makes that very clear. There are those who give in order to be seen by men, professions, and pledges are not always a guarantee of faithfulness. How many have made professions? I commit. I will do this and this. I... I I take you, I do well thee, only to break their words. I covenant only to break their words. A downcast demeanor and a self-condemning confession is not always gentleness. And abstinence from mischief is not always self-control. It is very easy to assume religious phrases, take them upon us, learn the lingo, acquire doctrines, argue ingeniously, 
on points of faith, practice with decorum, the rites and the forms of a religion that we would consider acceptable here. You observe ordinances, you show zeal. But if these things are not from the inside, because you have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has saved you, you rely on him alone. And as he has promised in his word, all who do that, he would in no way cast up. If all you're doing is repeating things because you're catechized in them as a child, and you've never had this time when you flew, you've gone to the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, trusted in him alone, and prayed for forgiveness of sins and been saved. If what you're doing is just pretense, then stop deceiving yourself. External conduct will have no value except as a proof of that inner disposition. It is only as a fruit of the Spirit that our amiable external conduct becomes precious, pleasant in the sight of God. But let's talk about the confirming life. And Pastor Murungi in the morning has encouraged our hearts as he preached on justification. The abundance of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life, their presence, the presence of these graces against them, there would be no law. If we keep ourselves growing in an abundant display of these graces against which there is no law, we will be no danger of any just condemnation from the world, and we are assured that we would not be condemned by God because it is he who is at work in us having justified. The apostle was writing to the Galatians to rescue them from the law of men who wanted them to be under the Mosaic law. He was grieved that they had been listening to the teachers and buying into their dogma. And he used very strong words. He was so passionate in his language, pleading with the Galatians not to leave the Lord Jesus Christ. Pulling out all the stops, he drew on every argument he could think to refute the doctrine of the law of men and maintain that liberty, the liberty of the believer, is in Christ, in the new covenant, and that liberty is sure. And it is in that context of writing. To the Galatians, telling them, you are free in Christ. Do not go back to this doctrine of salvation by Christ plus the law. 
We must not forget that background as we deal with against such things there is no law. Because those who forget that background of the entire scope of Galatians are many times out of these um, words brought about uh, abominable doctrines. Paul is addressing the subject of the believer's progressive sanctification. This is his concern. How will the believer be progressively sanctified in his life? How can a believer live a life of godliness, of holiness, of Christ-likeness? The apostle could not be clearer. The believer will live. The believer can only live a life of progressive sanctification by the Spirit. Going under the law of Moses hinders progressive sanctification. As the apostle told the Romans, as we've seen in times, in recent times, it is only because the believer has died to the law of Moses that he can possibly have life, a life of progressive sanctification, Romans 7, 4 to 6. He virtually is saying the same thing here to the Galatians. If, Galatians 5, 18, if or since you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he clearly means the law of Moses from the context. So consequently, the apostle is pressing his readers to leave, not as under the law of Moses, but to leave, to walk, in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 and, and Galatians 5.25 If you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step by the Spirit. And the Apostle has wonderful news for the Galatians. He offers them such tremendous encouragement. And it is all based on the glorious provisions of the new covenant. As he well knows, every believer has the Spirit. John 14, 17, Romans 8, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Every believer has the Spirit, and the Spirit has given every believer a new heart to live a life of obedience to all of God's commands. And that's why I spent time talking about the condemning life. Because a person who does not keep the commands of God, does that duty as a delight, is contradicting Jeremiah 31, 31, is contradicting Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, which clearly teach that the believer is given a new heart, a heart that delights in the duty of obedience. Paul leaves no room for doubt. He makes it as clear as noonday that the believer 
has the responsibility, the duty to walk in the spirit. We are duty bound to live out a life of obedience to God's commands by the spirit. The imperative is walk. That is a command. Walk. Walk by the spirit. But Paul is telling us also here. Having spelt out the fruit of the Spirit, which the Holy Spirit produces in the believer's life in this way of obedience, and he has listed them, those nine graces, a glorious encouragement to every believer as we see this fruit in their germinal, in their seedling versions. There is no believer who would say, I am absolutely not having this, even a, a seedling or this aspect. God produces it. And we'll be at various levels in producing the fruit, these nine graces, but we will not be lacking in any of them. We will desire it at the very least as a sign that the seed is there. Apostle is saying in the context, both in the context of the passage and the context of the book, that part of progressive sanctification is that we will see God working out the fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit is one that confirms that there is life, there is an abundance of life in us. There is an assurance in our lives as we begin seeing God enabling us to love people who previously we did not love. We look at our before and after, before Christ and once Christ came into our life and we see there is a change. Previously, I could not gouge out my right eye and chop off my right hand and other things that were keeping me from journey to Zion. But now I can remember. I can remember how by his grace, and though I look a fool to others, there is joy in my heart, how by his grace I did away with this and that because it was hindering me from walking the Christian life. We all have to confess the believer's progressive sanctification is never complete in this life. And that saddens us. We are embarrassed that glorification is, is not happening on this side of eternity. Sanctification is a thing we go through during all our life here. Positionally, we are perfect before God the moment we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are united to him. We are justified and positionally perfect before God. But progressively, no believer is perfect in this life. Even so, even in this state, Progressive sanctification 
where we have not yet achieved sinless perfection, the believer can still be assured. Indeed, he can be assured. The Spirit is producing his fruit in the believer. What is more, the apostle then comes to this punch here, this punchline. Against such things, there is no law. Although the believer, looking at his life, has to confess the inadequacy of his attainment, indeed, the more spiritual a believer is, the more he sees how weak he is and how he needs more progressive growth in his life. Nevertheless, the believer must never forget this glorious truth, which is, however weak his progressive sanctification, the apostle is not condoning any inadequacy in himself or others. And Romans 6 is very clear. We know that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. But shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? What does he say? Absolutely not. By no means. So he is not condoning inadequacy. He is not lowering the bar of God's Holiness, but he doesn't want us to forget this glorious truth that the believer can rest assured. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 1 to 4. Here in Galatians 5, 23b, Paul puts it this way. Against such things, there is no law. That is, there is no law whatsoever, whether the law of Moses, whether this, the ceremonial law. Indeed, as we saw in the morning, and we say this even trembling. Even the law of Christ indeed, or any human law outside that will condemn a person who is saved, who is justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. It is essential to remember that there is a fundamental chasm a gap that cannot be bridged between the unspiritual man, the man in the flesh, and the man in the spirit. And it shows in the lifestyles of each, and it also shows in their everlasting end. The works of the flesh, we have been told, are evident. They are in verse 19. 
And the fruit of the Spirit is also evident. So the Apostle is saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25. And do so out of a place of assurance that God has saved me. And as he works out these things in my life, it reminds me again such there is no law. No law whatsoever will condemn the believer. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying. May the Lord help us to rejoice and delight in this truth and to walk a life that demonstrates that we are indeed those who have been adopted into the family of God, having been justified by him. That in our vein burns a blood that marks us out as those whose genetic predisposition is we are children of God. So that when scripture says, be holy, even as your father is holy, our natural gravitation is in that direction. We may crawl at first, but that's the direction we are going. We do not slide back into unholiness. We climb towards holiness. As God is at work in our lives, enabling us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure.